0: car for three days and the battery doesn't do a thing, you walk. <laughs> Sorry. I was afraid I was going to miss amen for my first time this morning. We made it. Good to see you. We are finishing up Job today. All right, all right. Say goodbye to Job after today. Well, listen, it only gets better because, you know, Job asked us some Interesting questions when we're suffering, and we all end up with questions when we're suffering. And life seems to be miserable when we're suffering. Ecclesiastes looks at life as miserable even when things are going well. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we'll ask some even more profound questions. And we've seen that as you look at the wisdom literature in the Bible, Proverbs is a wonderful book. A wonderful book handles about ninety-five percent of your life, but you have to go to reflective wisdom to get those deepest answers to life's deepest questions, and we've certainly been seeing that in Job. Job, in many ways, is a, is a collection of human wisdom, people trying the best they can to explain why it is that we suffer. And I tell you, I've in the suffering that I've experienced and the suffering that I've observed, I've heard lots of men try to explain why people are going through this. And uh, it, it all ends up often just being a matter of Huge miscommunication, uh, which reminds me of a section that Swindoll gave in a in his book on Job when he talked about miscommunications. He said there was a couple from Minneapolis who went down to Florida for a little winter retreat, and they both had very busy jobs. So they the husband left a little bit ahead of her; she was going to come later. And when he got down there, you know, in warm Florida, he just wanted to let her know he got there all right. And he popped on his laptop and was going to send her an email. Problem was he miscommunicated. He, he left one letter off of the email address and it went to another woman in Houston who was just returning from her husband's funeral, newly widowed. She goes into her bedroom that night to get a little consolation you know, off the email from her friends and she picks up this email that says, to my loving wife from your departed husband, subject I've arrived. Here's what it says I have just arrived and have been checked in. Everything went very smoothly after my departure. I also verified that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. <laughs> Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is as uneventful as mine. P.S., it sure is hot down here. <laughs> 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 that woman's son in Houston walked in and found her passed out on the floor in her bedroom. Well, miscommunication is a miserable thing. But even when you're communicating accurately and you've got the wrong stuff, that's even worse. And that's what we've been seeing in Job until God opens His mouth. And when God opens His mouth, then things start to get straight. And when God opens His mouth, we find that men tend to shut their mouths. And that's exactly what happens to Job. It's what happens to his three friends and even young Elihu. Well, we saw last week that when God opened his mouth, Job began to shut his. At least it silenced him. And we said that there was still work to do because Job had not yet fully turned or repented from the cynical, somewhat cynical theology that he had about God's justice. Let's look then in Job chapter forty, and we'll pick up with verse six. Uh, Job has already spoken to the Lord once, saying, "I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you?" And I put my hand over my mouth. That's good. That's a good start. Now that we're going to get the second speech of Yahweh, the second speech of the Lord, in verse six, let's look at this speech. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. Brace yourself, like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would You discredit My justice? Would You condemn Me to justify Yourself? Do You have an arm like God's? And can Your voice thunder like His? Then adorn Yourself with glory and splendor and clothe Yourself in honor and majesty. Unleash the fury of Your wrath. Look at every proud man and bring him low. Look at every proud man and humble him. Crush the wicked where they stand. Bury them all in the dust together. Shroud their faces in the grave then I myself will admit to you that your own right hand can save you. Okay, what we see here in these first verses is that God reveals His sovereign justice. You might even say God reveals His sovereign justice and His salvation. But primarily, God is reminding Job that He, God, is the sovereign judge of all the universe. He says in verse uh, 8, would you discredit my justice? And Job had been discrediting his justice by raising all kinds of questions about whether God was just or not. And what's really interesting in this text, as we shall see, is that as... uh, Derek Kidner says in his his treatment of Job, he says God treats Job not as a philosopher, but as a child. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. Uh, we've seen that God does not... Uh, he does not answer Job's questions. They're the wrong questions as well as the wrong answers. God has some questions of His own. And He begins to pose them here. And He says in... Uh, verse 9. Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like his? And what he is saying is that we cannot compete. We cannot compare to the living God. So when God is showing himself as moral judge, gentlemen, he, he does it in two ways. We get one of them here. The first way that God, the, the method God doesn't use here is that His moral judgments are superior to ours. He is the moral judge because He is moral and we are not. Now, Job, uh, in Job, we don't see this argument being used. But God is good; we are not good. You know, there's no, there are only two people in the Bible who are called good. Uh, you get Barnabas and Joseph of Arimathea. God alone is good, says Jesus to the rich young ruler. When the rich young ruler calls Jesus good, calls him good teacher, Jesus said, no one is good but God alone. He's not questioning his deity. He's questioning the man's loose usage of the word good. God alone is good. That's the reason the only way we can have goodness is the way Barnabas had it. He was filled with the Spirit of God. And that makes sense. If we are to be good men, we must have the good Spirit fill us because in our flesh there is no good thing. So God is the definition of good. And some people say, well, is something uh, good because God did it? Or is it? Uh, did God do it because it was good? In other words, how do you define good? Is it just what God does or does God just do good? And the, question, the answer is both. God cannot violate his own standard of goodness. So it is good because he did it, but he does it because it's good. Both are true. Now, the second argument, the first one would be, of course, that God is is good. God alone is good. So He's the moral judge. But here in, in Job 40, what you have is that God is the judge of the universe because of His unrivaled sovereignty. In other words, His power. He is the definition of good because of who He is. He created all things. He created us. So uh, he is—he has full rights to be the judge. First of all, because he makes pure moral judgments. Secondly, because he's the creator and sustainer of the universe. This is his playground. He made it. It's his. He does with it what he wants to do. Now that's the argument that God is making to Job. He's arguing for his moral supremacy because he owns everything. He has, he's the only one who has any rights to anything. So, therefore, he has the right of moral judgments. You get that argument again in the New Testament. If you want to look at Romans chapter 9 for just a moment, uh, Paul argues on several fronts with the Romans uh, about God's fairness because after he explains salvation, this is page 1825, after God explains salvation in Romans 1 through 8, showing that. It is basically the people he elected. It's his people that are the ones who are saved. Then the question arises well, what happens to Israel? If God's choosing all these Gentiles and bringing them in, what about his promises to Israel? Isn't there a moral problem there? Paul's anticipating that question in the first part of Romans 9. Then you know the argument in Romans 9. You remember it from 12 years ago when we covered that. Uh, that Paul. Paul says, look, God is faithful to Israel. The problem is that all Israel is not Israel. And that is, all of ethnic Israel is not spiritual Israel. That's the argument he makes in the first part of Romans 9. You have to understand the doctrine of the remnant that comes from Isaiah, where God says He will preserve a remnant. And that's the true Israel within Israel. It's the elect within the ethnic group. And he's saying it's true with the church today. You have to understand that God's promises always apply to spiritual Israel. It applies to national Israel in a temporal way, but it applies to spiritual Israel in an eternal way. And he says, otherwise, how would you understand Jacob and Esau? They were both children of Isaac. But... Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He says before they were born or had done anything good or bad so that God's purpose in election might stand, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So he's saying you have to understand that that salvation is a matter of God's initiative, God's sovereignty, and God's glory. Then he goes on to say, well, you'll say, well, is God unfair then? This is all the argument of Romans 9. Well, so is God unfair or unjust, literally. And Paul goes on to show how, no, just the opposite. This is the essence of his justice because he says in Exodus 34, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. And that is his justice because that's the proclamation of his name. When he proclaims his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, the... The God of compassion. I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. That is justice because he's proclaiming his very being as the sovereign God who takes initiative and controls the universe and saves his people by his own grace and mercy. So just the opposite. That's the definition of his fairness, Paul says. Then Paul goes on. Uh, he's arguing. Of course, this is a soliloquy. He, he's arguing with himself, but he's arguing with all of us. He's anticipating all of our arguments. And you get into Romans 9 where he presses the argument finally. And he says, uh, let me find ourselves. Uh, Verse 19, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists His will? Isn't that a common objection to the sovereignty of God? But now look at Paul's answer in verse 20. But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? So Paul is speaking of a hypothetical here. He's saying, look, let's take the worst-case scenario in God's sovereignty. That is, that He actually made some for displaying the glory of His grace by saving them, and He actually made some to display His wrath, to pour out His wrath on sinners. What if God did that? Does He not have the right? Paul's just falling back on the ultimate, final argument. That's the worst-case scenario philosophically we can think of. What if that, that is the case? Paul is saying, so what does not God have the right to do with His clay what He wants to do? Continue the argument. What if God, verse 22, choosing to show His wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the object of His wrath, prepared for destruction? What if... See, this is all hypothetical. What if He did this to make the riches of His glory known to the objects of His mercy, whom He prepared in advance for glory, even as whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So he says, what if this is so? If it is, then who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Now basically, that's the argument in Job. Job, you're looking at your life and you know you've been walking with me. You know you've been living an upright life. If anybody's going to face disaster in this life, it doesn't seem that it should be you. In human terms, it doesn't make any sense. What if, worst case scenario, you have all this misery so that God is glorified? So what? Who are you, Clay, to talk back to the potter? Who are you, oh man, to talk back to God? Does he, does He not have rights, sovereign rights, over everything that He has made for His glory? Now, there is the bottom line in terms of as far as human philosophy thinking will take you. That's, that's the ultimate fallback position. And that's exactly what God is saying to Job in these first verses. We cannot compete. Now when you turn to verses 15 all the way through the end of verse 41, there are two major presentations here. And they both have to do with nature. And God is saying to Job, Job, hey look, just take a look around see if this doesn't make sense to you. Are you, in control, are you in control of nature? Can you handle everything out there? Can you take care of the storms that come along? Can you control the weather? He could say that. But here he picks two huge beasts that were either real beasts, and there's some speculation about what they are, or they're mythical figures that basically say, in summarizing all of the vicious things that can be done in, in nature, red in tooth and claw, uh, can you control it? Can, can you can you defeat the lion? Can you take the dragon and defeat him? That's basically what he's saying. But look at verse fifteen. He starts with this beast called Behemoth. Look at the Behemoth, which I made along with you. So Job, I made you in the Garden of Eden. I also made the Behemoth, and he describes this Behemoth. Now the word Behemoth is in Hebrew. It's the word beast in plural. But the way that God speaks about this beasts is in the singular as He describes them, as you will see. So that's the reason that we translate it behemoth. He must be just saying very large beast the way He describes them here. Look at the description. What strength He has in His loins. What power in the muscles of His belly. His tail uh, sways like a cedar. The sinews of His thighs are close-knit. His bones are tubes of bronze his limbs like rods of iron he ranks first among the works of god yet his maker can approach him with his sword the hills bring him their produce and all the wild animals play nearby under the lotus plant plants he lies hidden among the reeds in the marsh the lotuses conceal him in their shadow the poplars by the stream surround him when the river rages, he is not alarmed. He is secure through the Jordan, though the Jordan should surge against his mouth. Can anyone capture him by the eyes or trap him and pierce his nose? Now, from the description, some scholars have, have thought that this behemoth is a hippopotamus. I mean, if you look at him, his thighs are thick, his, the power of the muscles of his belly, strengthen his loins... And he, uh, he uh, feeds on grass like an ox, all describing a hippo. And I don't know if you've ever seen a hippo up close. Some of you remember I had one a little bit more up close than I wanted uh, when, when uh, Bob Coleman and I were visiting in, uh, uh, in uh, Malawi, uh, Africa. And uh, we uh, were told that we really had to watch out for the hippos at night especially because what happens is, you know, their skin's very sensitive to the sun. That's the reason they're in the water during the day. And they go and forage at night. Uh, You know, no sun. Their skin is fine. And the mamas go up and and get things for them and their babies who stay near the water. And what happens is if you're along the shore of the water at night, you can get between a mama and her calf, and you'd be in big trouble. Uh, The animal in Africa that kills more human beings than any other animal is the hippopotamus. And that's exactly the reason. So Bob and I, along with uh, uh, some elderly missionaries that we were with, who should have known better, of course. They've been living there all their lives. They're, they're 75 years old. Uh, this is, these are the Chinchins, by the way, if you know them. Jack and Nell Chinchin. We're, we're uh, hanging out near a lake. And so we decide to walk down the edge of the lake at night. And there are even signs there that say, you know, don't go any further. They're hippopotami. We didn't obey the signs at all. It's like kind of like speeding down Poplar, you know. I just, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm a rule breaker from the very beginning. So we just walk. We start walking down the the beach, and all of a sudden, we hear this ungodly sound. It sounds like the deepest bass voice you've ever heard in your life, down in the bottom of a barrel. I don't know how to imitate. I can't get that low. It was just awful. And all of a sudden, we start. We start running and I'm telling you what, you've never seen two old missionaries run so fast in your life. Uh, and we get back to where we were staying. This was after we had been ministry for several days and we were just out at this little, little place for the evening. And we just got back and laughed and laughed and laughed, chased by a hippopotamus in Africa. That, wouldn't that have be been great? Our pastor, yeah, he, he died from a hippopotamus, uh, didn't read the signs, uh, got run over by a hippo. I'm telling you what, I didn't, I didn't, I, you know, hippos seemed cute to me until my trip to Africa. And then they, they were terrifying. And that's what the Lord is saying here. This beast is terrifying, this behemoth. Now, other scholars say, this can't be a hippopotamus. Look at verse 17. His tail sway, sways like a cedar. No, I don't think so. Who knows what it is? But it's huge. And God is saying, you can't control it. You can't get your hand in his eyes and take care of him. You can't hook his nose. There's no way. He's running over you, he's more powerful than human beings but I control him. So, let's get straight. Who's in charge of the behemoth? Then you come to chapter 41, which is all about one beast called the Leviathan. Look at verse 41. Can you pull the Leviathan? Can you pull the Leviathan with a fish hook? Or tie down his tongue with a rope? (laughs) Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? And uh, some scholars think this is the crocodile. Maybe not, but possibly. And look at it and see if it sounds like a crocodile to you. Some others say, no, it's more of a mythical figure like a dragon. Uh, Some even say what he's really talking about here is Satan himself. Uh, But keep all those uh, uh, options in your mind as you read through here. Will he, uh, verse 3, keep begging you for mercy? Will he speak to you with gentle words? (laughs) Yeah, you've heard a gentle crocodile, haven't you? Uh, Will he make an agreement with you for you to take him as your slave for life? Can you make a pet of him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders barter for him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his hide with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? If you lay a hand on him, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. You see that? That's the key to this. I will not fail to speak of His limbs, His strength and His graceful form. Who can strip off His outer coat? Who would approach Him with a bridle? Who dares open the doors of His mouth ringed about with His fearsome teeth? His back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. Each is so close to the next that no air can pass between. They are joined fast to one another. They cling together and cannot be parted. His snorting throws out flashes of light. His eyes are like the rays of dawn. Firebrands stream from his mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours from his nostrils as from a boiling pot over a fire of reeds. His breath sets coals ablaze and flames dart from his mouth. Strength resides in his neck. Dismay goes before him. The folds of his flesh are tightly joined. They are firm and immovable. His chest is hard as rock, hard as a lower millstone. When he rises up, the mighty are terrified. They retreat before his thrashing. The sword that reaches him has no effect, nor does the spear or the dart or the javelin. Iron he treats like straw and bronze like rotten wood. Arrows do not make him flee. Sling stones are like chaff to him. A club seems to him but a piece of straw. He laughs at the rattling of the lance. His undersides are jagged potsherds, leaving a trail in the mud like a threshing sledge. He makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs at the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him he leaves a glistening wake. One would think the deep had white hair. Nothing on earth is His equal. A creature without fear. He looks down on all that are haughty. He is king over all that are proud. Maybe the crocodile sounds more like a dragon. Sounds even more to me like Satan himself. Satan is more powerful than anything on the earth. There's nothing you can do to harm him. You have no power over him. He is guarded in every respect. He is not afraid of you. He'll eat you for lunch. And that's what we see in the New Testament and the Old about the evil one. And God is saying, can you control him? Some people complain in this book that Satan never gets his comeuppance. That Satan seems to come off uh, without a problem. I think that what we're shown here is nobody comes off against God. And this may be a very picture of our worst enemy himself. And God is asking us, can you control him? Can I? Indeed he can. So we see that the nature confirms the behemoth is strong, he is elusive, the Leviathan is uncontrollable, and he is fearfully made. Nothing on earth is his equal. Nothing on earth is his equal. Now what then do we see in the first six verses of chapter forty two? God not only reveals His sovereign justice, but God removes our arrogance. And notice that this is the way it is with us. If we are to to respond to God appropriately, we must first hear Him. He must first reveal Himself to us. And that's what's going on in in this dialogue with Job. Job, first of all, listens. He sees. He observes. He takes in. That's the reason that it's great to have Amen Bible study at 6.30 in the morning. Start off your day with a revelation of God. Who is He? Live the rest of your day in light of that reality. And on days that are not Thursdays, it would be a good idea to rise up out of bed, start your day with a revelation from God. Who is He? And in light of who He is, who are we? And then we live our lives in the knowledge of who God is and who we are as His creatures. We get it all straight. There's only one who has divine rights. That's God Himself because He made everything and He sustains it. We have no rights unless He gives them to us. We have no life unless He gives it to us. We have no salvation unless He grants it to us. We are completely dependent upon Him. Now you're ready to go out the door and be a servant. Most of the time, we go out the door in charge, in control, thinking about what we're going to do, looking for all the plaudits that will come Our way. That's the way we walk out the door as little gods. It's important for us to walk out the door having experienced the revelation of God in His sovereign justice. That's what happens to Job, and that's the reason that God removes his arrogance, and He will remove ours too if we start off in the same way. Notice that in this experience of Job in verses 2 and 3, God reminds us of something. First of all, His unrivaled sovereignty. Let's look at the text. Then Job replied to the Lord, chapter 42, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscured my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So he reminds us in verses 2 and 3 of two things. Number one, of his unrivaled sovereignty. Job says of him, no plan of yours can be thwarted. Gentlemen, the most important thing to remember about life in general, but certainly when you're suffering, is that God has a plan. He has a plan for you personally. And it is a good plan. It may involve some short-term pain, but there is long-term gain coming out of it. And there is nothing that can thwart his plan. He has decreed whatsoever comes to pass. He is implementing that decree right now as I speak, and nothing is going to thwart it. And it's a benevolent plan for all of his children. So Job finally gets it. He says, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. That is essential for us to suffer and to live properly with a sound mind. Secondly, He reminds us of our relative ignorance. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. So often, especially in the information age in which we live, we think, man, we are so brilliant. And of course, human beings are bright. God has made us. Uh, with minds to observe creation. And it's absolutely wonderful that He's given us uh, these things. Uh, but we are to remember that compared to God, we know virtually nothing. We're in the dark. And when we try to tell Him how to run things, we simply darken His counsel. His counsel is light. His counsel is glorious. When we try to advise Him, all we're doing is bringing darkness into it because of our severe limitations. And Job finally admits here, I don't know what I'm talking about. And it would be very helpful if most of the time human beings would just admit, I don't know what I'm talking about. It's amazing. You get on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC. Or these places, these people are debating and they're so sure, cocksure, of what they're talking about. you got a person on the right and a person on the left. And they're both absolutely positive That they know what they're talking about. They know that Obama is wrong. They know that Obama is right. They know that Bush was wrong. They know that he was right. And it's amazing how cocksure or certain they are of everything. Job says, I don't know anything. And that's what happens when you meet God. All of a sudden, you're aware of your ignorance. And that is a great place to be because we have access to real knowledge in the Word of God. Now notice with verse 4, He not only reminds us of things, He revives us. God revives us with His Word. He's not, He's not giving us His Word about His sovereign justice to squash us, to make us uh, termites, to make us nothing, to, to destroy us. He is speaking to us uh, so that He can revive us. And notice how He revives us. The first thing that happens is we think more of God. Job says, My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. So, we elevate God in our thinking. And uh, scholars of uh, historic revivals tell us that the first thing that dawns upon people is the holiness of God. When revival comes. When revival comes, we are aware of His unparalleled holiness, of His majesty, of His sovereignty, of His greatness. And I'm convinced that there's one thing that men need today in our country It is a vision of who God really is. If you just look at the behavior on television, in athletic events, in business, just look at the behavior. We're behaving as though there is no God. We're behaving as though we're the sovereigns or potential sovereigns all competing for the throne. We need to remember who is on the throne. And when we do, think more of Him. We are on the path to revival. Job repented of his theological cynicism about God and put Him back on the throne in His heart where He belongs. Secondly, notice that when God revives us, we think less of ourselves. Job says, therefore, I despise. And the English translation adds myself. Because the best we can imagine he meant by that is that he was despising himself. Especially when he says, and repent in dust and ashes. But he says, I despise myself. Now, does that mean he was suffering from low self-esteem? No. But in the midst of knowing that God had made him more beautiful than the behemoth and the Leviathan, that God had made him the crown of creation, Job is very aware that he is a sinner. There, As we have seen, there are several reasons to be humble about ourselves. Number one, we're creatures. Number two, we're sinful creatures. And number three, we're redeemed sinful creatures. So we owe everything to him. Job is now simply comparing himself to God whose vision he has renewed in his mind. And when he does that, he rightly despises the things in him that are uh, despicable, that are fleshly, that are sinful. He can see it now. And he can see that he's just trying to justify himself. So instead of trying to justify himself, which he spent 40 chapters trying to do, he now despises himself in the presence of God. He humbles himself. And notice then, he not only thinks less of himself, but he changes. When we're revived, we think more of God, we think less of ourselves, and we change while God remains. He says, I repent in dust and ashes. Job made his repentance obvious to everybody around him. His repentance became more famous than his cynicism. And that's what he was determined to do. And when we repent of sin, then it becomes obvious to those around us. And Job covered himself with dust and ashes in order to make it clear to everyone else that he was humbling himself before the Lord. I'd like for you to turn with me to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's in the back of your Bibles if you've got the Spirit of the Reformation Study Bible. And look at... uh, This is page 2217. And look at the Westminster definition of repentance. This is what Job is doing. Let's take a look at it. Uh, This is is really a good definition that that, uh, I think combines what the Bible says in several places about this idea of repenting. Shorter Catechism, question 87 What is repentance unto life? Now notice first of all in the question something very important about repentance. It's not repentance unto death. It's not repentance unto misery. It's not repentance unto self-flagellation. It's repentance unto life. Repentance leads to life. We need to remember that. Sometimes we think of repentance as being miserable and we're always beating ourselves like a bunch of Muslims with chains over our shoulders. like a bunch of medieval monks whipping ourselves till we believe that that must be repentance. Repentance is unto life, unto joy, and see what it looks like. Repentance unto life is a saving grace. Stop right there. It is a gift of God, it's a grace. It's not something you work up in your flesh, it's not something you do like penance to pay for what you did. It's not penance. Repentance is a gift from God that is turning away from where you were, turning unto Him to enjoy Him. Repentance is almost like a reward, it's a gift from God. So, just as faith comes as a gift from God, says Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, so also repentance comes as a gift from God. Both faith and repentance, two sides of the same coin, which makes up the, the concept of conversion. Conversion consists of faith and repentance, repentance is a gift. It's a grace of God, a saving grace, whereby a sinner, this is only for sinners, not for angels, out of a true sense of his sin, all right, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. So let's stop right there. The sinner has a sense of his sin because he has apprehended the mercy of God in Christ. You can't repent without apprehending the mercy of forgiveness in Christ. If you don't know that you're going to be forgiven, you are not going to repent. You're going to image manage. You're going to cover up. It's too terrifying to repent if you don't know you're forgiven. Because all you're doing is revealing more reasons to damn you. So if you think you're damned, you're not about to come clean. But if you know you're forgiven, now you can have a true sense of sin. That is, sin down to the bottom of your heart that sin is not just what you did it was your intentions it was your attitude it was everything about you it was even your nature you get the true sense of sin when you apprehend the mercy of God in Christ the sinner doth with grief and hatred of his sin all right stop there repentance involves grief sorrow you're truly sorry for your sin A sociopath is sorry over and over and over again about one thing. He is sorry that he got caught. That's a sociopath. I've dealt with sociopaths who commit big sins and when I talk to them, they with tears will tell me how miserable they are and how sorry they are for what they did. But down at the root of it all, they're just sorry they got caught. But notice what this definition goes on to say. Grief and hatred of his... Sin, not hatred of the fact that he got caught. He actually cultivates a hatred for the very thing that he did or the very thing that he omitted. And then he turns from it unto God. So repentance is not just saying, I'm so sorry I committed that sin. I hate that sin. And here I go again. (laughs) No. Repentance is saying, I'm truly sorry for what I did against the Lord. And against His love for me. And I hate what I did. And I'm turning from it unto God. Remember, repentance is unto life. It's unto God. It's a turning unto Him. So it includes faith. You can't really repent without faith. And you can't have faith without repentance. It would be a spurious faith. So they they go together. So it is a turning unto God. And then look at this last phrase. With full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So, repentance does not mean, Lord, I hate that sin of, of adultery. Uh, and I'm going to turn from her, but I'm going to write a little note and tell her I'll see her tomorrow. Uh, <clears throat> it reminds me of a little girl, who uh, a friend of ours, uh, named Jamie Beth. She was six years old. This is a true story. And her parents were telling us about what happened in first grade when... A little Tommy wrote her a note and said, Jamie Beth, would you please be my girlfriend? And she wrote back a note and it said, "Uh, Dear Tommy, uh, you've been misbehaving far too much for me to be your girlfriend, but check with me on Thursday. (laughs) So that's kind of the way we deal with sin sometimes. I'm really sorry. I'm turning from it. check with you on Thursday. Uh, And we go this way. But what this definition is saying is, we make every endeavor and we purpose after a new obedience. That is, we make no provision for the flesh. So repentance is a full turning. Now, gentlemen, we know that we're not perfect. We know we're going to be sinning, at least that sin or some other sin again. Repentance is a lifestyle. And this is the difference between perfection and repentance. We're not perfect, but we are repentant. And this is what we're called to do. And sometimes it has to come out in the open like it does with Job. Because Job has been arguing with three guys he's been questioning god's justice in front of four people these three friends and elihu job is going to make it clear before his friends and anyone else who has been observing his foolish defense of himself that he's covering himself with dust and ashes and as people used to say long ago when you're repenting just be sure your repentance is more famous than your sin that you, if you have scattered doubt and cynicism among people around you, they should be able to see that you have turned. Some people will say, well, shoot, if I've, if I've gotten reconciled with God, why do I need to go apologize to people? Why do I need to deal with, with men? Isn't that just man-pleasing? No, it's not. It's honoring God in community. And that's exactly what Job is doing here. He's despising himself uh, and repenting in dust and ashes. So, God, first of all, reveals himself. That's the beginning of life. It's the beginning of wisdom that we fear God in his self revelation. Secondly, God removes our arrogance by giving us the gift of repentance. Thirdly, uh, verses 42, uh, 7 through 9, chapter 42, 7 through 9, God reproves our foolishness. If you wonder what happens to these three friends, see what God says in verse 7 through 9. Let's read it. After the Lord had said these things to Job, He said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite, Did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Now, notice, first of all, He chastens our bad advisors. You don't have to correct everybody. You don't have to wreak vengeance for their bad advice. You don't have to get even with anybody. God's going to take care of all of it. God's the ultimate judge. And the proof of your trust in His being the ultimate judge is that you're not having to wreak vengeance to prove yourself right with everybody all the time. Do you have that problem? I mean, I do. I love to be right. And I love for everybody to know I'm right. And when I'm like that, all I'm showing is that I don't believe in a God who's the ultimate moral judge. I have to get it now. In this life, I have to be right. I don't know what it is within us uh, that causes us to be this way. So many of us. But we do, don't we? And we see that God reproves our foolishness. He reproves the foolishness of people around us. You don't have to settle every account in this life God's going to chase some bad advisors. He says uh, to him, I am angry with you and your two friends, he says to Eliphaz. Now notice secondly though, that in reproving our foolishness, God has a way of elevating His faithful servants and of using us in the redemption of the world, including those who have sinned against us. This is really quite a turn. Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar and Elihu had come to Job as his advisors. They were coming to bring him wisdom. They were coming to mediate God to him. They were coming to show him the way. And God completely turns the tables around. Job is now the one who is going to mediate between God and these bad advisors. It's amazing. God will lift you up in due time. We're told by the Apostle Paul that that we should not be taking our internal squabbles among brothers to civil courts. He says it's inappropriate because don't you know you are destined even to judge angels? And you can't find someone among yourselves to arbitrate and to adjudicate? You have to go to civil courts for this? He says you are going to be judging angels. And here you see, right here, in ancient history, that role being... uh, being foretold because Job becomes the judge. He becomes the mediator. He becomes the one who's going to pray for those around him. Now notice, this is not only humbling for Job's three friends. It's very demanding of Job because you can't really pray for someone you haven't forgiven. And these guys added misery to Job for quite a number of days. And Job got very angry with them. Very angry with them. He said, I would wish you'd just shut up. He said, I wish you'd leave. He didn't want to see their face. And now he has been given ministry for them. Gentlemen, this is a picture of our role in the world. If you get to know anybody long enough, you're going to have reasons not to like them. If you get to know yourself real well, you ain't going to like yourself very much either. And there has to be grace and forgiveness to have relationships with Anybody? And when we minister in the name of Jesus Christ here and around the world, it demands forgiveness. If you minister among the poor, guess what's going to happen? They're going to rip you off. So are you going to cry and leave and say, I'm not going to have anything to do with those people anymore? No. You're going to forgive them today. You're going to forgive them tomorrow. 70 times 7. You're going to forgive them, forgive them, forgive them. If you're teaching a Sunday school class and you've worked really hard on that lesson and nobody shows up on Sunday morning, you're angry at them, guess what? You're only going to minister to people that you can forgive. If you can't forgive, you shouldn't be thinking of yourself as mediating on behalf of Christ for anybody. It requires forgiveness. If you're a father, your children always say thank you for everything they do that you do for them. They don't even know most of what you've done for them. And they've taken advantage of you. We all did of our parents. Forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. The only way Job can be useful in the world is to learn to forgive. And that's the reason that in the Lord's Prayer, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And we are taught in the Scriptures that we are not forgiven our sins if we are not in a forgiving state toward other people. Which means we need to experience forgiveness so that we can give it away. So when God saves someone and forgives them, He gives them a forgiving heart. He does. That's one of the gifts He gives us. And that's the reason that we're not terrified when He says forgive, them, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors because He has given us the ability to forgive our debtors. Are you using that gift? Are you forgiving those around you? Are you ministering to those who have hurt your feelings? Hey, it's not just being neutral. It's not just dropping charges against them. It's praying for them. I was talking to someone the other day who's been abused by her father. And she said, I just hate him. I don't think I can forgive him. And I said to her, "You know what? You do need to you need to say what you're really feeling. That's step number one. You really do hate your father, and you need to say that. You need to admit it. But you must not stop there. And all you need to know is what's in that cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you hated God and treated Him with disrespect." And He sent His Son to die on that cross for you. Do you have any claim on any other human being? Do you have any right to hold anything against anybody? Absolutely not. And I just suggest if you're having trouble forgiving someone, go sit in the sanctuary here and just stare at that cross. Contemplate what was done for you until you get it. And then you rise up and you go out into the world and serve with forgiveness. That's what Job was being called to do here. He was elevated... But in his elevation, he becomes a priest, if you will. A priest of God in the world. And he has to forgive all of those in the world. We can't say, I'm not going to Afghanistan to minister the gospel. Those people, they're trying to kill us. Remember, when we identify an enemy, we don't kill the enemy. When we identify an enemy, we die for that person. That's the Christian approach and mission. That's what Job is challenged with. God reproves the foolishness of the friends, and He reproves the foolishness of Job by putting him in a position not to criticize those men anymore, but to pray for them. And He does. And His prayer is accepted. Now lastly, the most wonderful thing, of course, you get to chapter 42, verse 10, and you see that God restores our fortunes. And notice first of all, uh, He does it faithfully. He said to Job he wanted to pray for his friends. Job prayed for his friends. And so it was after Job had prayed for his friends that the Lord made him prosperous again. And B, it was done lavishly. God gave him twice as much as he had before. Let's look at these verses. Verse 10, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karenhapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so he died old and full of years. Notice that in God's lavish gift to him, He gave him four things. Number one, consolation. Brothers, you will be consoled no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you've experienced, no matter all the dysfunction that you grew up with, no matter all the disappointments in your life about your performance, let me tell you something. There's coming a day when there will be perfect consolation, perfect peace and rest. God promises that to you. In the midst of Job's struggles, he had no idea that All the encouragement, all the consolation will be coming to Him by friends around. Our consolation comes from Christ. But we're going to a new heaven and a new earth. And all the brothers and sisters will be consoling one another. It's going to be a perfect environment. Secondly, the possessions that were given Him. Can you imagine this? He was already one of the richest men in the face of the earth and now He's twice as rich. Amazing. These possessions. We own everything that Christ owns. Gentlemen, all the galaxies... All the constellations. They're all ours. We own everything. Why would we be scrambling for a few dollars and cents here and worrying about our 401Ks and trying to pile up as many goods as we can here? It's nothing compared to what will be given to us in the end. And that's what Job had to realize. That his hope was not in all these possessions. That God was going to give him all the possessions he could ever imagine. And thirdly, he gives him children. He gives him Ten children again. And it's interesting that He actually names the daughters. They're beautiful. And here is a little hint at the way in which God looks at women because their names are mentioned, the other, the sons are not. They're mentioned beautiful. I guess maybe the sons, you know, it doesn't say the sons were ugly, but the, the daughters were beautiful. And the father granted them an inheritance along with the brothers. He makes a point here that in Job's experience, He's already showing the lavish kindness of God, not playing gender favorites, but showing blessing upon the children. And God gives him children. Some of us who are childless here, or maybe your your children have disappointed you, don't worry about it. You're going to be surrounded uh, with family. And fourthly and lastly, it gives him long life as the Scriptures often promise for those who are faithful. And of course, our life is very long. It's called eternal life. And... Some have suggested that since Job was given 140 years, he must have already had 70. He, God was doubling everything else, probably doubled his years. And so he had 210 years. And he saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And for those of us who are, uh, have experienced our children's children, it's just amazing what a blessing that is. And here he's saying it to the fourth generation. And so he died old and full of years. Now, we've got two minutes. And I'd like for us just to say three things about Job. Three things about Job that I hope all of us will take from here. First of all this. Trust in God's providence in your life. Trust in God's providence in your life. Job had a lot of reasons to question God's way of treating him. We've seen that. And I know that in your life you had those moments when you have really wondered if God is being fair with you. Remember Job's words. Though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. Trust His providence. He's taking you somewhere beautiful. Somewhere way beyond anything you ever deserved. Just trust Him. Secondly, don't switch sides when times are tough. Don't switch sides when times are tough. Persevere in your faith because you trust in His providence. And thirdly, wait for your reward. You have to learn to be patient. That's the reason that Job is called the most patient man on the face of the earth. Because he did wait. He didn't curse God. He didn't abandon God. didn't turn His back on Him. He questioned Him. But He didn't curse Him. And you see how God richly rewarded Him. Now this is wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that wisdom ends up through all of life's struggles, with a profound experience of God's richest blessings. And this richest blessing of all is to see Him face to face, which we shall do. So, gentlemen, we have been through the book of Job, and I think we all needed it because we all suffer. We all need to know to trust Him no matter what. We need to know to persevere and to wait for His gracious reward. May God bless you regardless of the earthly circumstances that You're facing in these days. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your servant Job. Thank You for Your kindness in revealing Yourself to him and restoring him beyond anything that he had known before. And grant to us the faith and hope and love to wait upon Your reward of all of Your children Help us to suffer with wisdom in these days. And when we question Your fairness, Lord, would You not only shut our mouths from our cynical theology, but Lord, grant to us a renewed closeness and intimacy with You which reminds us of Your unending love. We pray all of these things in the name of the One who gave Himself for us and who loves us with an everlasting love, even Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. God bless you, gents.